Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, the Liberals unveil their full financial plan Monday morning. It's called A Place to Grow, and we'll have full details. The NDP heads north. We'll catch you up on all the weekend announcements as well. And Greg Lyle from the Innovative Research Group will do a deep dive with us on some fascinating new polling information. It's Monday, May the 9th, 2022, day six of the campaign. So let's get to it. Amen. Do you remember that song? Give us a place to stand and a place to grow. And we call this land Ontario. Stop me now or I'll keep going. No, it was. I have no memory of that song. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, it was it was uh, the province of Ontario's theme song at Expo 67, which I attended as a kid and uh, which um, you were still, what, uh, 20 years away from being born? More than 20 uh, years 15, away from being born. something like that. Okay. Well, <laughs> the liberals are hearkening back to that tune with their just released fully costed financial plan called A Place to Grow. The Conservatives, of course, have their budget introduced but not passed in April as their campaign plan. The NDP have unveiled their platform, although it's not costed yet. That's still to come. So here now come the Liberals, and let's just say a bit of background as to how this platform came about. The Liberals have spent the past four years doing 25 open forums, engaging their grassroots. They say they had 500 consultation meetings. 28,000 people participated. They pitched 38,000 ideas and 230,000 party members ultimately voted for this platform. So without further ado, JMM, let's go through this. We'll get the nitty gritty on various sectors, starting with housing. Take us through what the Liberals have to say on that. So uh, the headline number here is that the Liberals uh, are proposing to build 1.5 million new homes uh, in the province of Ontario over the next 10 years. That's the same target that was set by the Housing Affordability Task Force commissioned by the government. Uh, it's the same target that the NDP have agreed to. This now seems to be the consensus number for, for the number of new homes that Ontario needs. Ontario Liberals, if elected, will deliver on a housing plan that is bold, that is ambitious, and that, again, will make life so much more affordable. Uh, they are also proposing to build 138,000 what they are calling deeply affordable homes. They want to tax uh, currently vacant homes. Uh, they think that's uh, keeping too much housing off of the market. Like these, these homes could be housing people and they're sitting empty. Uh, they want to ban uh, non-resident ownership. Uh, they want to establish a new Ontario Home Building Corporation to finance and build affordable homes uh, with $15 billion in capital spending uh, over 10 years. Uh, they want to promote housing options near transit stations, uh, allow renters and owners to um, increase the minimum housing permission. Basically, if, if neighbors on a street got together and, and voted to, they could uh, increase their own zoning permissions. Uh, they would scrap uh, ministerial zoning orders, saying that those have been abused by the Ford Conservatives. And uh, for tenants, this is probably a big one, uh, they would put rent control back on all apartment buildings in the province. A couple of follow-ups here. What do they mean when they say deeply affordable homes? Uh, 
Uh, in the language of uh, housing policy, you usually hear people talk about uh, housing costs relative to the area median income or AMI. Uh, that is, you know, the cost in rent or mortgage payments relative to how much people in that area make. So it's common to see municipalities call a unit affordable if it's say uh, 80% of the AMI. That is, you know, 20% less than the normal market rate for a similar unit. Uh, the problem in big Ontario cities is that 80% of the local median income is still incredibly expensive. So uh, housing advocates have taken to calling for deeply affordable housing with much steeper discounts relative to market prices. And that seems to be what the Liberals are referring to. And maybe a quick word on uh, the explanation of ministerial zoning orders. What are they and why are they so controversial and why do the Liberals want to scrap them? Uh, so uh, planning law is provincial law, and Ontario governments have always given themselves the power to make zoning decisions uh, directly in cases where provincial policy uh, saw a need to. Uh, the uh, Tories have used this power quite a bit uh, in their time, and it's been uh, controversial. They've used it uh, more than their predecessors have, though certainly I can t <laughs> I could give you examples of, of uses of MZOs under liberal governments as well. Um, but the Tory uses uh, have been... Uh, more and more controversial than their predecessors. Uh, critics have said that they put sensitive lands at risk and have uh, overrode uh, local uh, advocates, local concerns. Um, I, I will add, just a you know, point of fairness here, that uh, you know, in, in almost every case uh, where uh, Minister Steve Clark used an MZO, uh, they had a, a either a local or regional council vote supporting the use of that ministerial zoning order. Uh, nevertheless, they have made uh, many people unhappy and the Liberals are uh, promising not to use them anymore. Let's move on to seniors care. What are the Liberals saying on that? Uh, they would increase old age security by $1,000 for low-income seniors. They would help seniors pay for home repairs, such as uh, ramps and lifts. Uh, they would help 400,000 more seniors get home care uh, and end for-profit long-term care by uh, 2028. Of course, anybody who looks at a calendar knows that this uh, next legislature could only last until 2026. So that's uh, one point I will point out to our listeners. <laughs> They'd have to win two terms, in other, in other words, to make this happen. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Moving on to health care. What's up for that? Uh, they want to hire 100,000 new nurses, doctors, and other health care workers. Uh, one big uh, promise in the platform, they want to clear the surgical and diagnostic backlog. Uh, the uh, FAO has estimated that will take about $1.3 billion worth of services. Uh, the Liberals have uh, pledged at least a billion dollars to, uh, to clear that backlog. Uh, they want to put $3 billion more into mental health services and uh, make the option of virtual care permanent. Uh, this is just... Uh, uh, something that the government started to allow during the pandemic. Obviously, people still needed to, you know, talk with their uh, doctors or healthcare providers. But it had for for many many years they had literally hadn't allowed it in OHIP. And with the pandemic, they they allowed the OHIP billing codes to be used that uh, you know doctors could see their patients virtually. The Liberals are proposing to make that permanent. Yeah, where where appropriate, it's certainly a heck of a lot more convenient if you can do it. How about for business? What's in this plan for business? Uh, they would uh, eliminate uh, the uh, business taxes and give small loans to small businesses so that they can rebuild after the pandemic, uh, eliminate incorporation fees for new business startups. Uh, they would uh, mandate 10 paid sick days for all workers and move towards a four-day work week. Uh, there's already been some interesting uh, pilots uh, in various parts of Ontario about this. I've written for that at uh, tvo.org if people want to Google that. Um, they want to ban what they call 
unfair and underpaid gig and contract work. Uh, partly, this would involve classifying gig workers as employees under Ontario law. Uh, at the moment, if you uh, take jobs through Uber or, or Lyft or, or other apps, uh, technically, you are not necessarily considered an employee of those corporations. And what about colleges and universities? Uh, the Liberals are proposing to double OSAP funding. Uh, people might remember that under the uh, last Liberal government, there was a very uh, substantial reorganization of OSAP to the point where uh, m most low-income people could uh, get to university uh, without really having to pay very much at all. Um, I, I believe the Liberals were, were you know, calling it free tuition effectively. Um, and uh, I, I don't think this goes that far, but it, it's, it's a very substantial increase in, in OSAP funding. They would continue the tuition freeze on uh, post-secondary education that the uh, Tory government brought in uh, early in its tenure. Uh, they want to eliminate interest payments on provincial student loans and give $2,000 to those who go into apprenticeships to help uh, build the uh, building trades workforce. And let's do one more sector, climate change. What does the plan say on that? Yeah, no surprise that the, the Liberals have a, a pretty substantial section on climate change. They want to create 25,000 green jobs. Uh, they want to ban new natural gas plants, uh, cut transit fares to a buck a ride province-wide. Of course, we talked about that extensively last week. Um, they have already talked about wanting to cancel uh, Highway 413, uh, plant 800 million trees. Of course, when you plant a young tree and it grows into a big tree, that uh, sucks up some of the carbon dioxide from the air. Uh, they want to provide grants and interest-free loans to uh, help people retrofit their homes and, and buildings uh, so that they you know, use less fossil fuels, less energy. Uh, they want to offer rebates to purchase electric vehicles and e-bikes uh, and require all new passenger vehicles sold in Ontario to be zero emissions by 2035. Uh, and they want, uh, in total, the, the target they are setting is that this would cut uh, carbon pollution, uh, CO2, methane, those kinds of things uh, by more than 50% by 2030. Now, of course, there's a lot more in this platform, but it's an 81-page document, so we couldn't include it all here. But let's get to the bottom line. The Liberals are making these commitments using essentially the same numbers as were contained in the budget introduced by the Conservative government last month. In fact, in this budget year, that's 2022-23, they say, the Liberals do, that their promises will cost zero dollars more than the Tories. And next year, only three and a half billion more, and the following year, only 1.38 billion more. So the size of the annual deficits would be about the same. Add it all up. What does that all tell you? Well, it tells me that they are uh, relying on the uh, $10 billion, uh, I guess, windfall, you could call it, of cancelling the 413 highway. Uh, that is going to be a, a, one of their go-to answers for the question, how do you intend to pay for all of these promises? Uh, you know, that, that $10 billion is going to pay for a lot. It's not going to pay for everything in this document, but it's going to pay for a lot. Uh, what isn't covered by uh, the, the $10 billion from the 413 is going to be attributed to the increases in income taxes that they are proposing. Uh, they are talking about a, uh, an, in an increase in uh, income taxes for people who make uh, more than $200,000 and for corporations whose profits are more than $1 billion. So those two uh, tax increases uh, also add up to a pretty substantial chunk of change in this fiscal plan. And let's just say one last thing about this Liberal plan, and that is for those of you listening from London, Ontario, one of the candidates running in your area in London North Centre, Kate Graham, was the co-chair of this policy development process, along with someone named Carol Kim. Uh, both of them, incidentally, new mothers. So quite a Herculean task doing both of these jobs simultaneously. 
Okay, let's move on. Andrea Horvath was in Sudbury this morning to make some announcements related to Northern Ontario. I'm here to tell Northerners that they can have hope. She promised residents they won't have to wait more than 14 days to be reimbursed for health care related travel. She'd like to establish community health centers in Kenora, Cochrane, and Sault Ste. Marie. Those centers would include services for Indigenous and Francophone communities, and she'd like to hire 300 doctors for the region. You know, Northern healthcare is such a tough issue because, you know, people in Sudbury, in Timmins and elsewhere in the north, uh, you know, they're totally within their rights to be um, irritated by the fact that there aren't the same kinds of specialists close to them in Northern Ontario. So, you know, they are forced to travel to Toronto or Ottawa to get uh, treatments for illnesses. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's a lot. You know, people are, are taking these these uh, really long uh, trips used to be by the, the Northlander train. It's now frequently by bus. Um, you know, I, I don't think the policies that the NDP announced, you know, today would, would solve that problem uh, entirely. But uh, it, I did want to highlight it because it's the kind of issue that many of our listeners might simply not be aware of, especially if they live in and around the GTA. So many people across this province are wondering if they will ever be able to afford to own a home. That's Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, who was in Toronto this morning to make an announcement for the party's plan for first-time home buyers. And I can tell you, John Michael, having been uh, out on the weekend following a couple of candidates canvassing and knocking on doors, the issue of housing, particularly how first-time home buyers are ever going to get into the market, that comes up quite frequently. So why don't you give us the bullet points from the Greens housing plan? Right. Uh, Schreiner and the Greens are proposing to end blind bidding. Basically, uh, a, a home sale would would have to be conducted in an, an open auction process. Uh, this is actually done in Australia, so it's not uh, entirely groundbreaking. Uh, they would make home inspections mandatory, uh, implement a multiple home speculation tax and a vacant home tax, uh, so that uh, you know people who who own multiple homes uh, would effectively pay a little bit of a surtax. Uh, and they also want to uh, create a new new multi-provider home warranty model. Uh, anybody who's dealt with the, the new home warranty system in Ontario, Tarion, uh, I will simply say that while multiple governments have, have made reforms to Tarion, it still is a, uh, a lightning rod for a lot of criticism and a lot of complaints. So the Greens are uh, here trying to address that as well. No events today for PC leader Doug Ford, but he did do some over the weekend. He made a stop in Timmins. We're saying yes to connecting Timmins with new roads and rail. Make no mistake, Northern Ontario's best days are still ahead. He was there to announce some rail and roadway promises for that city. And JMM, why don't you take us through that? PC leader Doug Ford was in Timmins proposing $74 million to rebuild Highway 101 and $75 million to uh, restart the Northlander, the uh, train that was cancelled in the last decade uh, under the uh, previous Liberal government. I, now, I, this is a short thing. I'm not going to make a, a huge meal of this, but I, I do have to say he also said that... Uh, a totally normal thing for a, a incumbent premier to go to a riding where his, his party does not hold the seat and say, well, you know, you should send a, a champion from our party to, to Queen's Park and, and your your concerns will be better addressed. However, he did say that his words were he's never heard Gilles Bisson's voice at Queen's Park. And look, if you've been <laughs> anywhere within the walls of Queen's Park, you, you're almost guaranteed to have heard Gilles Bisson's voice. The man has been heckling Tory premiers since the current premier's uh, father was an MPP. I, I guarantee you, Gilles Bisson has been
been a loud voice for his community, and in particular on the issue of northern highways, has has absolutely been a a, a voice for his community. Uh, it was just it was a very strange thing for uh, PC leader Doug Ford to have said uh, this weekend. Well, I, I can confirm your understanding of this because I think Jill Bisson got elected for the first time in 1990, and I did cover his campaign up in Timmins, and he's represented that part of the province ever since then. He's never lost an election there, and. Um, We've heard his voice. Yes. <laughs> he, he's got a booming voice and he talks loud, sometimes gets him in trouble, but you do hear his voice. Uh, well, as long as we're in the north, let's uh, go west and talk about Sault Ste. Marie because the premier was in the Sioux over the weekend to make, um, well, let's call it what it is. He reannounced, probably for the third or fourth time, his uh, commitment to uh, build a road to the Ring of Fire so that all of those mineral deposits can be unlocked. Anything new in this announcement in particular you want to highlight? Not a huge amount of uh, news from the the appearance in Sault Ste. Marie. This is an issue that ha- has now followed multiple premiers. Uh, but the Tories are uh, t- testing out some new branding, I guess I would say. Uh, they are calling it, I think, the, the Corridor of Prosperity. You know, for if, if you haven't been following this issue, the, these are uh, uh, mineral deposits in the province's northwest that don't currently have any rail or road access. Uh, the province has finally gotten, uh, it, it seems to be an agreement, uh, among uh, two uh, First Nations to build a a road north to these deposits. And uh, things might be starting to move after more than a decade, but uh, we are still, I think it's fair to say, you know, we are still quite some time from when you might actually see these mines open and, of course, much needed uh, jobs, uh, you know, actually start to appear in these areas. And let's do one more quick item now before we get to our interview with Greg Lyle. And again, it's just catching you up from what happened on the weekend. Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, announced that if you want your kid to go to school in the province under a liberal government, if the kid is of age, the kid is going to have to be vaccinated against COVID-19. So the liberals would add COVID-19 shots to the list of immunization shots, such as mumps, measles, rubella, polio, whooping cough, etc., etc., that you have to have before you go to school. Yeah, this would build on, uh, there's uh, currently nine uh, immunizations that are required by provincial law. Uh, COVID would make it around 10. Uh, the The existing law, the Immunization of School Pupils Act, uh, does give exemptions for uh, religious reasons, matters of conscience, um, or medical related uh, reasons. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, for example, to compel children who are uh, too young, you know, children under the age of five currently can't receive the COVID vaccine. There's nothing approved from Health Canada yet. Uh, so we're not talking about compelling uh, kids, uh, you know, in, in junior kindergarten to get a, a shot that they aren't yet cleared for. Uh, nobody's talking about that. Uh, but, you know, Del Duca and the Liberals are, are saying this is necessary to, to normalize the idea of COVID-19 shots. Uh, only a, about 40% of eligible kids have been uh, fully immunized against COVID-19. That is to say, they've received uh, both of their uh, first two doses. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, by the time we get to the start of the new school year, we might be talking about boosters for uh, school-age kids. So, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, you know, we aren't having a, a more fulsome discussion about this yet. <laughs> well, let's welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Greg Lyle, head of the Innovative Research Group, who's got some fascinating new polling data that we're going to chew over about the state of play in this campaign. Greg, it's great to see you again. How are you doing? Great. Good to see everybody. 
Happy to be with you. Let's get into this. We're going to dive right in. A majority, you find, 58%, agree that you can be anything you want in Ontario if you are willing to work for it. But I follow that up with this. 50% also say, no matter how hard I work, I'm having trouble getting by. Now, if you're a political strategist, what do you do with that? Well, you combine the two. And you take a look at, at the conflicts within uh, Ontario voters. And uh, there's two really interesting groups there. Um, one group are people that say you can be anything you want if you work hard enough, but say they're not getting ahead today. Uh, so we call those people the, the strugglers, the struggling middle class. And um, those are, are people that you can clearly see that Doug Ford is going after, right? He's trying uh, to make the point that government needs to get out of your way so that you can achieve the goals that you're aiming for. There's another group that Andrea Horvath is clearly setting her sights on, and that's the economically alienated. Those are people that say the system's rigged. It's out to get me. Um, and that we need to to uphold the apple cart. And those are, are people that you can, I, I think of as, as Bernie Sanders people, right? Or AOC people. And I assume uh, everyone on your podcast knows AOC. The, um, you know, so someone who's very open to a left-wing populist message. And so you've got a sort of center-right populist message. You've got a left populist message. And you've got the liberals wondering which way to go. 56% of respondents agree it's time for a change uh, in your uh, recent survey, but 35% agree uh, that the PCs are the best choice to form government. So are the Tories really vulnerable on the time for a change front? They are. So that 35% isn't as good as we've seen for other governments in other times. Um, so if you compare to the last Kathleen Wynne election, the 2018 election, those numbers are great. But if you compare it to Kathleen Wynne's first election, they're not so good. Um, and, you know, there's, we talk about ballot questions. So it's the, so how is an election framed? Um, and so one way you could frame this election is as a referendum on the uh, record of the government itself. That would be bad for the Tories. That would probably stop them from winning a majority government. Um, but as I see it right now, it's not framed that way. Um, it's it's framed more in a leadership lens and on a sense of, of who's up to the job. A lot like um, you both will recall, and probably most of your listeners as well, the uh, 1999 Ontario election when there was the unknown Alton McGuinty um, and uh, the four-year incumbent, Mike Harris. People didn't like everything that Mike Harris did, but they thought that he was strong and he was, uh, you know, hardworking um, and uh, and making a real effort to make a difference. Um, and so even people that might not have agreed with everything that uh, Mike Harris did ended up voting for him over the untested and unknown Dalton McGinty. Let's do a deeper dive on the leaders here. And what we're going to do is we're going to give the leaders the four names of the four major party leaders, then give the numbers of whether people view them favorably or unfavorably, and then we'll emerge out of all of that with a question. Doug Ford, leader of the PC party, 33% of those you surveyed had a favorable impression of him, 48% unfavorable. Andrea Horvath, NDP leader, 29% favorable, 41% unfavorable. Stephen Del Duca, liberal leader, 18% favorable, 36%, twice as many, unfavorable. 
Mike Schreiner, 12% favorable, 13% unfavorable, basically a tie. I don't know. I look at those numbers and I say, we don't seem to like anybody out there. Is that right? It's true. And actually, the negatives for all three of the major leaders leaders uh, went up in the past couple of months. Um, but uh, I sort of ascribe that to people that aren't voting for those parties who are likely to vote for other parties, uh, you know, recognizing, oh, that person leads a party I don't like. I don't like that person. Um, and so I, I don't worry too much about that if I was any of the campaign leaders. I think the striking thing there is that uh, Andrea Horvath, who starts out with a lot less uh, people that historically vote NDP or feel close to the NDP, uh, polls uh, almost even with the leader of a party that has twice as many partisans as hers, um, and outpolls another party that has twice as many partisans as her. So, um, you know, there's a, a bit of a you know, if, if you did a survey of pundits or what pundits are saying, um, there's a there's a fairly negative take on Andrea Horvath saying, well, you know, she's had this is her fourth run edit. She hasn't been able to work any miracles for the NDP. Um, and so maybe this is it for her. But I continue to look at her as somebody that dramatically outpolls her party, uh, provides a bridge for people that don't uh, feel like New Democrats to vote New Democrats. And who, with a party that had half as many loyalists as the other two parties, almost won the last election, which is a remarkable event. I, I you know, anyone that thinks through um, how people feel about parties and sees a party that starts, you know, basically, it's if it's a hundred meter dash, she has to do two hundred meters, right? And she starts two hundred meters behind and almost beat the guy who started with a 100-meter head start. I mean, that's that's nuts. And well, underappreciated, in my view. Let me do a quick follow-up on that on that guy, because uh, Doug Ford, after four years of being premier, does have the highest favorable numbers, but he's also got the highest unfavorable numbers. Now, if you're running the Tory campaign, what do you do with that? Well, you're, you're not worried about the fact that people that are really unlikely to vote Tory don't like your leader. It's not a big deal. Um, what's really striking, and something that I've I can't recall ever seeing in any Canadian election in 35 years is that Doug Ford, after four years as the PC government leader, has a brand that is distinct from the government and the party. 15% of Ontario voters are people that don't feel close to the Tories, but like Doug Ford. And right now he's getting more than half those votes. That's why they're winning. Um, and it's ironic because in the last election, he was a drag on the Tories, right? People didn't like him. Um, even some of the Tories didn't like him. And virtually anyone that wasn't a Tory didn't like him. Um, and the, the Ford nation that we had at that time was sort of a bunch of angry old guys who were already Tory. Um, and so, you know, you look at what's going on now. And he's reaching deep into the center of Ontario politics based on the way people assessed his job during COVID. And, you know, it's not that people said this guy was the best thing since sliced bread. He made every every decision right, never made a mistake. Uh, what, they, what they feel about him is that, sure, he made mistakes, but when he made a mistake and we made a noise about it, he stopped, listened, and changed. He both rallies his own vote, 
Uh, and he serves to a degree to rally his opponents. I'd like to follow up on this real quick, if I could, just because I, I do think it's one of the, the more interesting uh, findings in your survey. I have always thought of Doug Ford as a polarizing political uh, figure, um, and maybe that's a, a carryover from 2018. Uh, but I mean, is he still, in fact, polarizing? Is that no longer true? Or is it uh, just something different right now? <laughs> Well, I mean, in the last election, there was actually consensus that most people didn't like Doug Ford. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so not as polarized as we thought. Almost wasn't polarizing. <laughs> so, so this time he is polarizing, but that's okay, right? In a parliamentary democracy where multiple parties have a shot at the brass ring, if you divide the public, you win. So back to some of these numbers. Uh, we have which of the following leaders would make the best premier of Ontario? Uh, Ford, 28%, followed closely by no one at 27%, uh, Andrea Horvath at 19%, uh, and Stephen Del Duca at 12%. Uh, what do you take from those numbers? Well, number one, no one's got yeah. a bullet, right? Uh, no one's got some real momentum. Um, so I, I think part of that, though, was um, that... Uh, you know, Ford has had a bit of a, um, a rally around the flag event, right? So a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily vote Tory or even vote for Doug Ford were prepared to support him uh, during COVID. Um, but now that they're looking at the election, um, there was, you know, some some recalibration going on. Um but there's a second, so so number one, it's it's that rally around the, the flag event, which is quite unusual, right? I mean, we don't generally see that because COVID was an unprecedented event. But we'll likely see um, is something we see in every election, which is uh, we often talk about before elections, governments are measured against the perfect and governments don't do well against the perfect. But in an election, they're measured against the alternative. And um, and so that's when we do our time for a change work, as we talked about before, we don't just ask, is it time for a change? We ask people agree, disagree. Um, the, the government in charge may have its problems, but it's still better than the alternatives. And so, you know, one of the things that you would typically see um, in an election campaign is is these conflicted government supporters, uh, what we would call in this election, time for a change Tories rallying to the government. Um, what's different about this campaign, and, and I feel like I'm saying that every third line, because it is quite a different election compared to many others, is that the Tories are already terribly efficient in terms of um, winning uh, a high share of conflicted voters. So if you look at those time for a change Tories, the Tories have more than half of them. Normally at this point in the campaign, they'd be 40% or less. Um, and so that says the Tories are hitting a limit um, with time for a change attitudes the way they are. Um, the, you know, the sort of um, independent brand of the premiers um, is, is working Um but it, it has a limit to how much further it can go unless they can change time for a change. Um, but again, they don't have to necessarily change the actual time for a change sentiment. They just have to change the number of people that say that the Tories may have their problem, but they're the best of the alternatives. The other thing to bear in mind, and it's just remarkable, it's another unique thing about this campaign. The incumbent premier 
wins on who's best at a lever to deliver change for someone like you. Deliver change. Like he's been in power for four years. He should not win change, right? That should be a gimme for the opposition. And Horvath is very close on that. Del Duca is nowhere to be seen. Um, but it's, you know, the premier wins on change. Like if you win on change. And then the other thing, it may be on your list, but I'm just going to jump ahead, um, in, uh, is that he also wins on caring. Again, he just just edges out Andrew Horvath on caring. But I've never, ever, ever seen an election campaign in which the leader who is best on caring is the conservative. It's just not what conservatives get. Is that because he's not really a conservative? Well, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I mean, there's an ideology there, right? It's a pretty standard chamber of commerce sort of ideology, right? Um, open for business, all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, given, you know, if he hears a, a groundswell of opposition to something that flows from that, he stops and says, are we sure we should do that? Um, and it's a real question for him. It is not a given where, you know, most politicians will say, sure, it doesn't work in practice, but it works in theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, that I have watched this race with fascination on is the issue of who's going to be the main challenger to Ford. Uh, because, of course, four years ago, the liberals were handed a, a, a historic decimation. And the question of whether or not the public would be prepared to bring them back into the game or keep them in the penalty box is something that has interested me. And according to your survey, 55% say this election is now a two-horse race between the progressive conservatives and the liberals. And then when you ask, which party do you think has the best chance of beating the progressive conservatives in the upcoming election? It's liberals 48, New Democrats 20 despite the fact they were the official opposition in the last house, the NDP. So, Greg, if you're the NDP wise guys in the back rooms, what do you do with that? Well, I think the reality is if you've been watching the numbers closely, um, we saw practically days after the last election that the Liberals were bouncing back right away because the issue in that election is that the number of people that felt like Liberals didn't change. But almost half those people voted NDP to send a message to their own party. But then the message was delivered, right? And uh, the leader stepped down, a new leader was selected, job done um, from the point of view of, of those voters. And so by and large, they're mostly home, but they're not all home, right? A big problem that the liberals have right now is that they have you know less than 70%, close to 60% of the people that feel like liberals voting liberal. Um, and they're losing equal amounts to uh, the NDP and the Tories right now. So that's obviously that's a bad thing. But from the perspective of election campaigns, um, a lot of uh, people out there will have read things like Thinking Fast and Slow and other books like that that talk about confirmatory bias, the degree to which we see the world through our own rose-colored glasses to confirm the underlying feelings that we have. And so if you're someone that feels like a liberal, but you're voting for another party, you're conflicted. And ideally, you would resolve that, that conflict in a way that uh, leaves you voting liberal again. That's what you probably like to do. You might not consciously be aware of that, but your unconscious is, um, you know, feels conflicted. 
and wants to resolve that, make that conflict go away. So in terms of the three parties, the party that has the easiest um, communications challenge, uh, which doesn't mean it's actually easiest, easy, it's just easier than the challenge the other two parties have, is to get people that feel like liberals to vote liberals. Uh, for both the Tories and the NDP, they're trying to get people that don't feel like Tories or New Democrats to vote Tory or New Democrat. And that's a much more difficult challenge. So any of that, to get to John's question, there was a question, um, which is, you know, what's going on with that, uh, the primary for who gets to, um, to uh, you know, go into the final against the Tories. Right now, the liberals are ahead and um, it's difficult for the NDP to overcome that. Um, but the NDP is, is running a frame that has a natural audience, which is that Ontario's broke, right? That the system's broke. And so those economic alienated we were talking about, or another way of looking at this is we group people by shared values, the people that share core left values, they think the, that the economic system is a, is a fundamental problem. Uh, and they, they want it torn down and fixed. So they want to see things like, you know, tax the rich and tax corporations and tougher rules on corporations and, get um, private delivery of healthcare out of the way and all those those sorts of things. And so the job of the NDP at this stage of the campaign is uh, to pull those people and to get them excited about a true change agenda, a compassionate revolution rather than a common sense revolution. Um, and if they do that, they are close enough to the liberals that they could then get ahead of the liberals, right? They just have to grow, they, basically five points flips the order. And once they're actually ahead of the liberals in the polls, then you would see that number, um, the the fifties or fifty percent or so that say that uh, the liberal that this is really a two horse race. You'll see that change to be like it was in the last election campaign when it flipped. So if it flips again, um, then you could see a second showdown of the NDP versus the Tories. And then as, as we get to the close of the campaign. Um, then uh, the NDP have to come up with a better close than they had in the last election campaign. But first, they have to get ahead of the liberals. And to do that, they really need to get across um, that are you for real change or not? Which, ironically, is Mike Harrison 95. Yeah, right. yeah. Following up then, Greg, from uh, something you said in the midst of that answer, if you can get, obviously, 100% of your supporters to vote for you, uh, then you're going to want to try to get the supporters of other parties to come your way as well, and that's how you win. But it seems at the moment, like all the parties are bleeding a little bit of support. Uh, the, at the moment, you've only got 63% of Liberals voting Liberal, 76% of Greens voting Green, 79% of Tories voting PC, and 82% of New Democrats voting NDP. The NDP vote out there seems to be the firmest. So what does this say about the Liberals' potential to either win or come a strong second if at the moment, they've not even got two-thirds of their regular supporters supporting them. Well, again, though, so from the perspective of persuasion, the liberals now have the easiest job. The problem that they've got is that um, people that are 
more or less ideological or more or less party loyalists, those people tend up to make up their minds at the start of the election campaign. So right now we have, you know, close to 40 percent uh, in the 30s saying, I've heard all the information I need to make up my mind. I don't need to hear any more. But we've got more than 60 percent that say they would like to hear more. Those people that want to hear more tend to focus on leadership. Um and Del Duca is the most undefined of the three leaders. Almost half of Ontarians don't know what to make of him. Um, and so the, the challenge for the liberals is to get people to resolve that. If they could just get liberals to like Del Duca, right, just get liberals to like their own leader, then they would cement their position against the Tories. And then at the back end of this campaign, they can go to New Democrats and say, don't waste your vote. Stop Doug Ford by voting for us. Um, but the problem is they're going to be outspent two to one over the next couple of weeks. As And we've seen, um, in fact, we tested in October, November, the ads that the Liberals, uh, or sorry, that the Tories and New Democrats were running against Stephen Del Duca. And they worked. His negatives went up at that point in time. Um, and so they're just going to dust them off and run them again. I mean, ironically, those the the two parties, the Tories and the NDP, use the same picture of Stephen Del Duca in their ads. I mean, it, it really gets you wondering. So um, it is an uphill battle for the Liberals, um, and you know the test of this will be: do they find a way to pull that off? Gotcha. Greg, it's always a pleasure to have you on our podcast. That's Greg Lyle from the Innovative Research Group. You be well, and we'll talk again down the road. Thanks so much. And that is the On Poly podcast for Monday, May the 9th, 2022, day six. A reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign, right through to June 2nd, election day. JMM, we'll see you tomorrow on The Hustings. See you tomorrow, Steve.